1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 50. We've already read it. And beginning in verse 35, Paul writes, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? It's clear from how Paul responds to this question that this wasn't just an inquisitive question. The church wasn't just curious. They didn't like write a letter to Paul saying, hey Paul, we're curious about this. Can you please answer it for us? By the way he responds, it's clear this was a different kind of question. It wasn't posed to actually get an answer. It was posed to demonstrate why they don't believe it. We, have, we see other examples of this. For example, remember when Jesus was talking to Pilate about truth, and Pilate says, what is truth? And then he walks away. He wasn't actually asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell me, what is truth? He was saying, what is truth? Like not, not to get an answer, but to demonstrate, I don't believe that there is absolute truth. What is truth anyway? We also see this happening when the Sadducees question Jesus about the resurrection in Matthew 22. Do you remember they give the story of there was a woman and she was married to a man and the man died and so her husband married her because, you know, women back then couldn't work and provide for themselves. So it was a common thing. But then he died and the other brother married and so on and on and on it goes and she had multiple husbands and so they say, in the afterlife, whose wife is she? And you can tell by Jesus' response to them, similarly harsh, that they weren't actually wanting an answer. They were trying to show him why the resurrection makes no sense. They're like, this is why we don't believe in the resurrection. How would this happen? How would this work out? How would this thing play out in your view of eternity? Whose wife would she be? So they're not really asking to get a real answer. They're asking a question to demonstrate why they don't believe something. And so Paul here in this text is responding to those in the church that didn't believe in a resurrection. And so they wouldn't actually say, what kind of body will we have in the resurrection? That wouldn't be a real question they would have because they don't believe in a resurrection. So they're not asking this because they believe in a resurrection and they're just hoping that Paul will help them understand it. They're saying, we don't believe it. Because the thing about it, I mean, your body goes in the ground, it decomposes, and you're saying, what? We're going to raise and look like what? Like decomposed skeletons walking around in heaven? Like, what's that going to be like, Paul? That's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. That's what they're doing. And um, side note, we have to be careful to not make the same mistakes when it comes to reading the Bible. It's one thing to not know what a verse means. It's one thing to not really understand a certain belief in terms of like, what does the Bible actually say about this? It's a different thing to say, I know the Bible says this, but I don't understand it, so I'm not going to believe it. And so, for example, you guys know I spent a lot of time um, in high school. I had a lot of friends that were of different religions than me, and Jehovah's Witnesses were always coming to my door <laughs> to talk to me. And my friends at school and I would always debate about this. And they'd start off by saying something like this, Jesus can't be God. And I would say, well, show me in the Bible why you believe that. And so they'd come up with a couple of verses where it might seem like Jesus could be inferior to the Father. And they'd say, so therefore, he's not God. But once you demonstrated the overwhelming evidence that the Bible shows that he actually is God, and you walk them through, if you actually can get them to sit long enough and they have no more arguments left, what's left is they'll say this, but it doesn't make sense. 
We see nothing like that in our world. And God wrote the Bible so we'd understand it. If we can't understand it, it must not be true. And that's where they, that's what they end up. So in truth, what's happening is they know what the Bible says. They had to mistranslate it to try to get it to say something different because they didn't understand the Trinity, so they just don't believe it. And there's many things like that. And the resurrection is like that. Some people don't, even as Christians, don't really think about it or find their hope in it or try to understand it or maybe even believe it because it's kind of vague. The Bible's not very clear on exactly what it's going to be like. And we're always kind of afraid of the unknown. And so we have this tendency to sort of like, well, yeah, if I die, and who knows, that might be the end, but I'm going with this anyway. I think Christianity's true, but I don't really understand that. So, you know, whatever. I don't really, I'm not looking forward to it, that kind of thing. We've got to be careful. Just because we don't understand something doesn't mean we shouldn't believe it. If we believe the Bible's true, we believe that the Bible is for us to have faith and to, to have hope in, then we come across a hard thing like we die and our body is decomposing, but we're going to be resurrected and what's that going to look like? We can get glimpses into what that looks like. Not a full picture. God has chosen to not reveal all of it to us, but we get an idea about it. And even if we're not satisfied with that, even if it's not enough to satisfy our interests, that doesn't mean we should not believe it. Like anything else in the Bible, some truths are easy to understand, but hard to believe. How about the one that says, when you believe in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven? We often still carry around sometimes guilt and shame from things we've done. But if we actually believe what the Bible says, we could believe that we're fully forgiven and that God is not looking at us with angry eyes, but forgives us and with love and with joy looking on us. And so again, simple truth, Bible's clear about it, but we can have a hard time believing it sometimes. So we've got to be careful with that and not make the same mistake these people are doing by saying, well, I don't understand how we're going to be raised, so I'm just not going to believe it. So as we look at this text and consider this topic, let's not doubt simply because it's a mystery. Let's not doubt just because God hasn't yet fully revealed everything about what eternity is going to look like. Because that kind of doubt will cause you to lose hope And like I said before, we need this hope. Paul has been painstakingly showing us how important it is to have hope in the resurrection. If we live the way Christ wants us to live, we're going to need to have the hope of eternity. We're not going to survive living the way Christ wants us to live if we don't actually have hope for eternity. And if you're living now without that, eternity means nothing to you, chances are you aren't actually living the way God wants you to live. So there's like a, a self-check in there. If, if eternity is not something that's ever on your mind, you're not worried about it, you don't think about it, chances are you're not living the way God wants you to live. And Because if you are, you're going to be giving up things here that you need to have hope in eternity for. So we have to protect our happiness here. Our happiness in the resurrection, our happiness in knowing Christ, our happiness in what's to come, we have to protect that. So, the title today, the title today is The Resurrection Part 5, Death is Only the Beginning. It reminds me of when I was in Taekwondo 
And this guy that I was coming up the ranks with um, got further than me because I kept taking cycles off because of work and life stuff. He got to be a black belt. And I was like, man, you've made it. Like, that's an accomplishment. You've made it. And he goes, no, I've just begun my journey. I was like, come on. Like, that's so hard to think about, to work so hard for so long to get this black belt and recognize that that's just the beginning because now there's first degree, second degree, third degree, up to like eighth degree. And that's where the real stuff begins. And the same way, we're working towards eternity here. We're working towards this goal. We're working towards living for Christ, dying to ourselves with this hope of eternity. And once we get there, life's just beginning. So death is only the beginning. Okay, so let's look at how Paul explains this or responds to this so-called question. Verse 36. You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat, or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. It's remarkable to me how many things God has created that provide great metaphors of much deeper truths. And Jesus is, he was great at doing that. He was taking, he would take common things that they saw around them, whether it was metaphors about farming or shepherding or whatever, and he would just enlighten them with all this deep spiritual truth. And Paul's doing the same thing here. Paul didn't actually come up with this metaphor, though Jesus did. Um, Jesus said the same thing in John 12. Funny note, um, we went through this together. We've gone through John 12, and we taught on this on September 11th, 2016. Not like that matters, but... (laughs) Jesus said, John 12, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So I'm not a farmer, and I don't get how plants work. Lindsay could maybe explain this. But um, I read a commentary from John Gill that said, The seed being cast into the earth corrupts, rots, and dies, and then is quickened and rises up in stalk, blade, or in an ear. So either way, what Paul is saying is this seed has to go into the ground. I think it's already dead by that point, but I don't know for sure. But either way, even going into the ground is a symbol of being buried, like being dead. And then it becomes something else after that, right? So what Paul is doing here is he's actually taking their argument and turning it against them. They're saying, how could the resurrection work if we've died and our bodies are decomposing in the ground? And Paul's saying, no, but unless that happens, you can't raise. So they're wondering... If we die, we can't come to life again. Our breath's no longer in our lungs. How would that even work? And he's saying, no, actually, that has to happen or else you can't be raised. Um, I, I call stuff like that the, um, the reform reversal. Like in wrestling, when someone does a reversal, you know. So reformed people, before I was reformed, I would debate with people about certain verses. I'd say things like, I don't see how this could be true. And they'd see. I don't see how anything else could be true. They just kind of like reverse it. And I had so much of that happening that I started calling it the reformed reversal. And now that I'm reformed, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm part of that problem. But um, Paul does that here. He does a reformed reversal. They're saying, how could the resurrection even work when, once you're dead? And he's like, no, but once you're dead, you have to die in order to be raised. 
And so um, Chrys- Chrysostom, who was this um, Archbishop of Constantinople, he lived in the 4th century, he wrote this Amelie 41 on 1 Corinthians. He said, Do you see what I am always observing, that Paul continually gives their argument the contrary turn? Thus what they made a sure sign of our not rising again, the same he makes a demonstration of our rising. And now he goes into a little bit more detail about that. Verses 39 through 50. And we've read this together, so I'm just going to kind of summarize sort of what he's saying here. He's essentially saying the same thing in many different ways in these verses. As you read through this, you might have noticed he seems to in some ways be repeating himself. All flesh isn't the same. One flesh of men, one flesh of beasts, another of birds, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, different glories, sun and the moon, the stars, they're all different. The earthly body, the heavenly body, they're different. He kind of keeps saying those things. And kind of a side note, why do you think, I mean, why do you think Paul spent so much time kind of saying the same things in these verses? You know, if you recall, words are cheap these days. You know, I can type faster than I can speak. But back then, writing was hard to come by. The materials were expensive and costly, harder to preserve. It took longer to write them. And so that's why it makes sense that in many of these New Testament writings and Old Testament writings, they would pack a lot of deep meaning into a few words because words were expensive. So if words were expensive and hard to, re- or hard to write and costly, why would he spend so long kind of saying the similar thing? He could have said it all in one verse. He could have said, the earthly body is not like the heavenly body. And when you die, you'll be different later. That's really all he could have said. But he said all these things, and I think it's because of how important it is. It's not to say that when Paul writes more dense things, that that's not important. But there are certain things that are foundationally important. And this is one of those things. Believing in the resurrection is one of those things that's so important that Paul wants to spend all of his effort making sure there's no confusion about the resurrection. It's one of these foundational things. He wants to be absolutely clear. And I, there's basically three main points that I think he's making in these verses. So I'm going to just summarize those three main points. And they're going to be kind of obvious because it seems obvious and it is obvious, but it's foundational. Point number one, our heavenly body will not be like our earthly body. That's the first point he's making. Our heavenly body will not be like our earthly body. The next point that I think he's making is our heavenly body will be much greater than our earthly body. So it won't be like our earthly body and it'll be much greater than our earthly body. And then point number three, our earthly body must end before our heavenly body can begin. The earthly body must end before our heavenly body can begin. So let's describe these things a little bit. The first point, our heavenly body will not be like our earthly body. He's saying things like, all flesh isn't the same. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. They're different. Our current body, he says, is perishable. The Greek word there is phthora. Phthora. And the word means corrupt. D 
decayed. Our heavenly body is not going to be like that. It's not going to be corrupt or decayed or perishable. It's the exact opposite of that. The word imperishable is the exact opposite of opposite of plethora. <laughs> point, point number two. Opposite. I like that. Opposite. Point number two. Our heavenly form will be much greater than our earthly form because of the metaphor. A seed has no value by itself. If someone gave you a seed and that's all it's going to become, it means nothing. Its only value is in what it represents. Right? If someone gives you a seed, one seed can't even fill you. You couldn't even eat it and be satisfied. One seed, right? It's in what it can become. So that seed goes in the ground and it becomes, without doubt, something better. Something greater comes out of it. Point number three, our earthly form, our earthly body must end before we can take on our heavenly form. So this perishable body does not inherit the imperishable, he said in verse 50. We are, in case you didn't know, not our bodies. We are not defined by our bodies. You could lose an arm, a leg, both arms, both legs. You could lose your face. You could lose your brain. And we would still say, you are the one who lost those things because you are something different than those things. There isn't a total amount of physical body you could lose that it would no longer be you who lost it. Yes, you can have your personality changed and your memory can be lost, but it would still be you who lost your memory because you are going to exist beyond this body. You inhabit your body, but you are not the same as your body. And in order for you to inherit the imperishable body, you will have to be shed of this perishable body. So that's what I think Paul is saying in these verses. So there are some important questions that we need to ask about the resurrection, not from a place of doubt, but from a place of just legitimately, I want to hope in this thing, but it's hard to hope in it because of these things. It's hard to hope because I'm confused. So here are the questions that I came up with. Number one, will any part of our current body remain in the resurrection? Or is it entirely new? And that kind of matters because of question number two. Will we recognize one another in the resurrection? Question number three, where are believers now who have died? Has the resurrection already happened for them? Or is it still in the future? And if it's in the future, where are they now? Are they, like some believe in this thing called soul sleep, just unconsciously waiting or are they in the presence of God now, just waiting for their bodies? All of those questions I'm going to go into more in detail next week because the text brings us there. This is as far as we're going to go today, but what I'm going to do is just give you a preview of my views on that, give you some hope for next week, but I'm going to actually defend it next week with Scripture, okay? But here are my beliefs so far, and I will have verses for this. Question number one, yes there is actually a part of our current body that will be part of the resurrection. We will be shed of the corruption, the decay, and the sin, but the body won't be completely destroyed as much as it will be renewed. Point number two. Yes, 
we will recognize one another in heaven. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. And I'll go into this again more next week. First reason why, <coughs> Moses and Elijah that were with Christ at the transfiguration, they could be recognized for who they were. Jesus, when he rose, could be recognized for who he was. So again, more on that next week. But 1 John 3, 2 says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. And so if Christ could be recognized and we will be like him in the resurrection, then we will be recognized. So again, more next week. The final question, where are believers now who have died? I strongly believe that believers are right now in the presence of the Lord, just awaiting their physical resurrection. And I, I can prove that to you, and I will next week. So come back. I'll be here all week. Um, to conclude, just to restate what I said at the beginning, there's a certain way that Christ wants us to live. And it makes no sense if you have no hope in eternity. Um, it's a sacrificial kind of living. We must fight against our sinful impulses. It remains not rewarding every desire we have. It means we are not satisfied physically because we're giving things up for Christ that are part of our natural desires. Think about it like a diet, which I'm constantly on and sometimes doing better than other times. When you're on a diet, you go through this period of time where your body is aching and complaining because you're not giving it what it wants. Whether it's sugar or it's carbs, it actually hurts and your body won't let you not think about it and you're struggling and like, I'll wake up at night hungry. But when I'm disciplined, I continue through that because I want something out of it, right? Because I want to be healthier, because I want to have better mental clarity, because I don't want to feel exhausted all the time from the ups and downs of the carb addiction that I used to have. So there's reasons why I would sacrifice that and allow myself to go through that. It's because of the hope of something else. Spiritually, it's the same thing. To live the way Christ wants us to live, to not sin, to not give in to those impulses. And also, on the positive aspect, to live for Him, to seek Him, to set aside time to read your Bible and pray to Him. Those are all things that don't, na don't come natural to us and our, our physical body will make war against. Because you could sleep in later if you didn't have to get up earlier to study the Bible. You could have more friends if you didn't have to say no to certain things because of your faith. You'd have more friends, you'd be more popular if Christ didn't command you to share your faith with others. And you're at war with yourself because your flesh doesn't want to live for Christ. And if you have no hope of the resurrection, that's like if you've been on a diet for a month and you've been hungry every day and you get on the scale and nothing has changed. That kind of discouragement causes you to just go to the cupboard and eat stuff, right? Because what's the point? So if we have no hope of the resurrection, what's the point? Is what Paul's saying. You're not going to be able to live for Christ if you don't have this hope. So what I want to do is end with a couple of verses because there is a lot to be said in the Bible about eternity. 
even if we don't get to understand everything, there are some verses that I found encouraging that I want to just read through and then we'll end. I'm not going to even read the references, so just listen. And if you want them, you can come up afterwards. I just want you to let these verses sink in. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself, just as he is pure. 